This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Did you read with Tim Montgomery? Welcome to the latest edition of the Times Opinions Did You Read podcast. This week I'm joined by two Times columnists, David Aronovich and Matthew Paris, and also by the award-winning parliamentary sketch writer, Anne Trenman. Each of them has a message which they will be debating in this week's programme. The Mitchell affair has, at the very least, uncovered a kind of casual mendacity on the part of police officers. This comes as no surprise to me personally, however much I esteem the bravery of many officers, partly because the notion that police are allowed to bend the rules is widespread in the culture. People keep asking me, what is Nick Clegg up to? And the honest answer is that I am rather baffled. Can you have your key minister, David Laws, one minute passionately defending free schools? And it was passionate, because I was there. And then the next minute, have Nick Clegg announcing that actually, it's all rubbish. And eventually, it has to go. Can you have your cake and eat it too? I really don't think so. The Conservative Party and its leadership should treat the alleged rise of the populist right with courteous contempt, rather than appear panicked by evidence of UKIP's support into taking a joke manifesto seriously. Trying to meet their concerns plays into their hands, as they can always outflank a serious party of government with their saloon bar promises. David Aronovich, we'll start with you and your argument about the mendacity of the police. When I was growing up um, as a loyal Conservative, the police for me were something, some part of society I always trusted. And I think for a lot of Conservatives, um, the left's attack on the police we couldn't understand. But because of recent things, not least the Andrew Mitchell episode, that trust does seem to be eroded. But most of the time, most of the police are honest and essential to public order. Do you worry about the level of criticism that the police are currently facing? I'd say I've been on completely the opposite journey to a large extent because growing up as a loyal communist, I used to think the police were a bunch of bastards who were trying to do you in at the first available opportunity and experience by and large bore that out, including my own personal experience of being arrested on a demonstration at 17 on the bay and then finding in the magistrate's court that the policeman who arrested me concocted an entire 
fiction in order to justify his arrest. That they had also falsified the record, the spoken record, uh, the record that they had written down and got mm. me to sign actually in the police station itself. Now, they thought, in fact, that they were being nice to me because once they discovered my age, I think they decided not to charge me with assault, which is what they generally did. By and large, it was well known amongst demonstrators that if they charged you with assault, it was because they'd hit you. But David, um, Matthew they, Paris, you, they were being nice uh, to you. I mean, you must have loved being arrested. <laughs> you wanted to be arrested, didn't you? I'm no, probably no. disappointed that you weren't charged. No, I was really scared, actually. <laughs> it was it was funny. I mean, um, I'd been standing on the corner saying that, that a woman had been it was a demonstration outside Rhodesia House in the early seventies, and a young woman had been dragged across the road by her hair, uh, and I and I shouted out, uh, "I'm going to! You must take that officer's name." A number, rather. And it was as I, after I did this that this sort of very large guy from the special patrol group emerged from behind me. He was a sergeant and took me. And I found myself being the one with my arm up behind my back going into one of those green coaches. And I thought, Great. well, I've seen this a lot. <laughs> well, I was a bit young. I think if maybe if I'd been a little bit older, I would have yes, kind of 17 is, is, is uh, young. Yes, and I then found myself in the police station with a senior BBC executive who'd also been arrested at the same demonstration. Well, I have to say, in terms of Westminster, Andrew Mitchell's stock has never been so high. So in in a kind of bizarre way, this whole affair has helped him um, in his uh, popularity, so to speak. But I think the thing that is really sort of shocking, uh, because we did have a lot of miscarriages of justice, uh, you know, in the past decades. But we've all got the feeling the police have cleaned up their act a bit. But the not only the mendacity, but the audacity of you go to a meeting with someone who was in the cabinet quite recently. He tells you what happened. You come out and say he didn't tell us what happened. It's only because his wife told him to tape it that we know. And this is such a small, tiny thing. And yet, there, it was brazen. I mean, I couldn't. I really still can't get over the fact the police thought, "Oh no, no one will tape us." I mean, it was just amazing, wasn't it? Matthew Paris. But what I wouldn't buy, and um, uh, in what I think Tim was was hinting at, is is the idea that we ought to be a little bit careful about um, criticizing the police, and and that it's it's rather a pity that these things are coming to light because it will lower public respect for the police. We've got to be honest in Britain, and you won't raise public respect by letting anyone get the impression that the police are are above investigation or above criticism. My sort of response to that is, I can totally see your point, but I think the police should be out there selling their case. At the moment, they're hiding behind sort of little badges and saying, oh, but you've got to respect us because there'll be a breakdown. Well, we don't have to respect you if you don't respect yourself enough to get out there and say, look, we shouldn't have done that. We're sorry. And they they, they almost seem to be in denial at the moment. The police federation's behaviour, they are acting like some of the most old-fashioned retrograde trade unions in defending police practices and rather than being the force to clean out the stables. Uh, It seems to to me that there's a a strange thing here because if you look at the police literature in detective novels, TV series and so on, what you discover is that it's always the police officer bending the rules who is the hero. They all do it. They all have a noble cause for the reasons as to why they secretly do something to a suspect that they shouldn't do. Maybe they rough them up a bit when they oughtn't to. They put on a wiretap that they're not allowed to, etc. And they solve the case in this kind of way. There's actually a 
new BBC series dedicated to a police team that operate beneath the rules because that's the only way certain crimes well, will be and, and this, solved. And, and this is very typical. And this actually emerges from a kind of sense of reality we have, I think partially rooted in our adversarial uh, system, which is it's not telling the truth that wins the case. It's who is prepared, you know, to be to, to be the hardest and the firmest and the so and the most noble. Well, let's um, move on to our um, second topic, which is your topic, and and Nick Clegg surprised all of us at the uh, <laughs> weekend by seemingly disowning a key part of the free schools. I still policy. can't quite believe it, actually. <laughs> and I, I think one of the more surprising aspects of this um, particular difference between the Liberals and Conservatives is. We've had lots of differences between the uh, left of the Liberal Democrats and the right of the Conservatives. But this disagreement over free schools is a disagreement between the orange book tendency of the Liberal Democrats and the, and, and the Cameroon tendency of the Conservative Party. This, we thought, was agreed policy. And I think it certainly is unnerved, number 10, that uh, Nick Clegg would say what he did. I still can't get over it. I mean, to be happening in the Commons last Thursday, and David Law is absolutely ripping into Tristram Hunt about his alleged vault farce on free schools. And all Tristram was saying was that there shouldn't be unqualified teachers in schools. He wasn't against having free schools. He was against unqualified teachers and was also saying that in this case of the school in Derby, that the fact that there were so many unqualified teachers had certainly contributed to what was obviously quite a dysfunctional situation. And, you know, David Law has just ripped into him. You know, these, this is absolutely free. It's got to happen. It's, it's marvelous. You know, one bad apple. And then all of a sudden, on Sunday, I read this, this interview with Clegg saying exactly the opposite. I just thought, is this credible? Can they continue in this bizarre fashion? But, but, but Clegg's right, isn't he? I, I, I think the conservative leadership must be worried because most people in Britain would surely think, uh, firstly, that... that uh, teachers should be qualified to be teachers and and secondly that there should be some sort of core curriculum which the the state can insist is taught in schools funded by the state but both those propositions seem obvious to me i don't think i'd entirely understood um what this free school thing was all about i think i'm with Claire on this well no there's no question that um i personally think that if you have a school then you should have teachers who are qualified to be teachers i mean i think that and i think the entire it, personally, it, it's, it's just so obvious. But that is not government policy. And Michael Gove, who everyone thinks is the boy wonder, is specifically stated that is not government policy. And David Laws specifically backed this policy. And then all of a sudden, it's all thrown up in the air. I think uh, one David of the things that's interesting, uh, but recently was also the Michael Gove's advisor, former advisor Dominic Cummings, major magnum opus, which <laughs> t- which touched upon this subject in a kind of tangential way because what. Cummings said was, look, we all have this kind of image of creating the heroic, brilliant teacher. But in fact, such a person is rare, uh, in fact, which is why most teachers need rules most of the time. Gove seems to have this kind of notion of the heroic, brilliant, non-qualified teacher, which, of course, could theoretically happen. There will be some such people. But in the generality of things, most people who are not qualified to be teachers, it means they don't actually know very much about teaching and you wouldn't necessarily want them let loose upon your children. And as Matthew says, there's nothing sort of very, very complicated about that. I think I need to defend the existing setup, seeing no one else around the table is. And I, I think you, know, you go to a lot of the most expensive private schools in the country and they don't use 
teachers who've come from teacher training college where they've learned theories of teaching, but they are brilliant engineers or mathematicians or they've been in politics. And I think that's what the free school idea is supposed to be about. It's about bringing those kinds of people into the state system and people who don't want to spend a long time in a teacher training college but probably have a lot to offer a classroom. And I think as long as they are led by a good head teacher, as long as they're inspected by Ofsted, which these free schools are, standards are maintained. And um, I think there's a very good case for exactly what the system is now. Yeah, but the problem being, Tim, there may not be very many of such people, uh, actually. But if there are a few of them, they should be allowed no, to No, no, and that bit I understand. Um, the, the other problem is that the private schools pay top dollar for these people and, yeah, and, and pull them in, so and the selected. free schools won't. Mm-hmm. But there should be more freedom of... Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Flexibility for free schools to better, like with academies, to pay better teachers more money, uh, which is one of the debates. But we're probably getting into the substance of free schools. Let's get back to Nick Clegg not talking to David Laws and not talking to David Cameron, uh, which was your point. What was the strategy? Was there a political strategy from Nick Clegg? Well, I mean, strategy and the word Lib Dem and strategy, in my mind, don't go together brilliantly. But, you know, we did just have this conference, which was just oozing, you know, sort of slight smugness at how brilliant they'd been at turning around the economy and government. They were controlling. You know, no one can exist without the Lib Dems in their brain because they they soften the conservatives and they, they would make labor more kind of sort of businesslike. I mean, they really are the smug party. And then they have this, what I would call complete chaos, really. Um, it is chaos and it is confusing for people. I, I, I agree. I think it's chaos, too. And my, my theory is that um, Nick Clegg was in the same case as me. He hadn't actually realized that free school was <laughs> 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 this, this Derby school business has brought it to his astonished attention. So Anne Treneman is criticizing Nick Clegg for inconsistency and bad party management. You're, con- you're criticizing him, Matthew, for not really knowing even what the government is doing, <laughs> which is the bigger criticism. There are always, I, th- I, actually, I think Matthew's, those being funny, is actually probably right. Uh, I think this is, this is probably true. The unfortunate juxtaposition 
question is the is is Laws's speech to Clegg's re- realization. However, this tension is inherent in the Liberal Democrat position, which is to say, we have had this effect, and we have had exactly as you say the softening effect, and so on, and. Other things being equal, you could see why it would be in the Liberal Democrats' advantage to say this is something where we would like to slightly soften what the Tories are doing because it's too doctrinaire free market or whatever it is that you want to say. But the problem that you also have is, of course, some Liberal Democrat ministers go native on you and actually have end up having more in common with their conservative overlords okay. uh, in some ministries than they actually do to you. And David Laws was always to be... An, David Laws was always going to love Michael Gove, and Michael Gove was always going to love da- David Laws and so on. And this is much... This relationship is much more important than mere party. So, you know, actually what you need really is more sort of odd couple relationships like Norman Baker and Theresa May in the Home yeah, Office to play that. off uh, one another. Love that one. <laughs> but anyway, we must move on uh, to our third and uh, final topic. And this is uh, your topic, uh, Matthew Paris, which is your concern that the Tory leadership might be uh, playing too much to the UKIP uh, crowd and will therefore lose the uh, its appeal to centre voters. I don't think the, the Conservative leadership is doing that yet, although some of Mrs May's stuff on immigration is slightly distasteful. Generally speaking, I think the the leadership of the Conservative Party understands that um, what support David Cameron has, he has as a very centrist leader. And anything that would look like a lurch to the right to appease UKIP not only would be very damaging to the Conservative Party, but I think is understood uh, to, uh, to, to to, to hold out that prospect. But quite a few people on the right in in the party who I think actually secretly agree with uh, UKIP's policies anyway are using the rise of UKIP as an excuse for saying that it would be in the Conservative Party's interest to move in UKIP's direction. You you, you never hear anybody who who doesn't actually have quite a lot of sympathy with UKIP's position advocating uh, this tactical move. It's always people who start out sympathising a bit with with uh, UKIP and then say, well, that's the reason why the Conservative Party should move to the right. Well, you can imagine how it would be if there was a a, a decent party of the far left, uh, which was gaining some votes uh, and so on. It it actually happened when the Greens were doing well and so on to a certain extent in the Labour Party. People in the Labour Party turned around and said, look, this shows that there is an appetite on the left of the Labour Party. This is an appetite for this kind of policies, which coincidentally happen to be the kind of policies which we've always supported uh, (laughs) to an extent ourselves. And these actually are our brothers and sisters separated, not by blood, but by bureaucratic divide and by our inability to to, to, to relate to them and so on. So disappointingly for your desire for big controversy, Tim. You agree um, with Matthew. I agree with Matthew. Anne? Are you going to well, be? Well, I actually, I mean, you know, the Tory Party conference, Farage uh, was banned from it, which is insane. I mean, why would you ban anyone from anything? Because they just get more publicity. Um, he then did this bizarre rally with um, outside the secure outside zone, the yeah. secure zone, which I went to, where he was treated more or less like a rock star. Um, you know, there's some scrum around him. It's like Boris mania used to be, but Nigel Farage, which does make you really wonder if the world's gone bonkers. <laughs> but I think that. They, they've got to get a better policy than ban him, ignore him, and just in general say, no, you can't be part of the debate, you can't be part of anything, and just say, make him even, like, better. Do you know what I mean? Glamorous, sort of, not glamorous, but do you know what I mean? Like, sort of, yeah. it does make him bigger by ignoring him. And I just think that a lot of UKIP's policies 
will fall apart upon examination. Just the very thing that he's totally anti-EU while actually getting all his money from the EU and all his power from the EU is in itself, you know, hypocrisy. Mm. I'm, I'm, I'm not so uh, in agreement with Matthew or, or David. And I think one of the skills of a good party leader isn't just to be good on TV, to master policy detail. It's actually to be manage a diverse coalition. And Matthew, David, a lot of us may not agree with a lot of what the UKIP stands for, but they've, their voters, at least, are an important part of a centre-right winning coalition. And I don't think you appeal, you don't build that coalition by describing those supporters as that case. But Tim, they're not of the centre. They're, they're not uh, of the centre. They're not they of the centre. And so you have a real problem because what you create is a situation whereby you, if you try and pull people like UKIP in, you create more common cause between a Clegg, a Cameron uh, and a Tristram Hunt than you do between people in their own party. In other words, you make it impossible. It's a bit like asking Labour to shift to, to try hard to accommodate the far left. This is where it's, I think I disagree, David, because if you look at opinion polls on issues like Europe, tax, immigration, now this is, these are views held by 70% of the population. They're not uh, far right views. Yeah. Now, there, there you go. There you go. You see, you are an example of one of those people who... You were talking about earlier. ...whom <laughs> I was talking about earlier. I, I think you actually would personally agree with a shift in, in UKIP's direction. Uh, and, and so your, your view that it would be helpful electorally can actually be separated from your view that it would be the right thing to do. By the way, the left always used to say exactly what you said about <laughs> things like defence policy, incidentally, yeah. always. Well, all the polls in the early 1980s showed support for multilateral, not unilateral disarmament. So I don't think that's quite right, David. But Anne... Well, I really hesitate to, in any way, talk... To, uh, Matthew is the expert on the Conservative Party and no, no, uh, no. more than I, but I would actually say that, that it already has shifted to the right. Certainly the the parliamentary party has shifted to the right. There's no question about that on questions of Europe, on immigration. It is already in UKIP, not not totally UKIP territory, but near it. And I think that that has to be dealt with. Can I, can I ask a question sort of stepping back from this? We've seen the, the Tea Party tensions in the United States. We're seeing the emergence of actually quite right-wing parties in Europe. And of course, we have UKIP here. Are we seeing not just a problem in Britain, but are we seeing a fracturing of the of the right around the world between a sort of an establishment right and a more populist right? Is this a phenomenon that's temporarily related to the global shutdown, or actually is there a bigger phenomenon here? Well, you were in Australia, so you saw another kind of another kind of possibility, uh, and so on. Firstly, what you're seeing is incumbent parties getting shafted all over the place yep. by and large that's number one so there's a kind of there's a kind of insurrectionary theme uh, but it's true that that theme isn't playing out well for the left so since 2008 by and large people have tended to retreat upon what I would call isolationism nationalism protectionism so on these are the sort of directions not that everybody wants to go in but a bigger proportion of people than before so it creates a kind of current a sort of way of thinking about things which is more fashionable than once it was. And, and the divisions are on the left as well. You, you mentioned Australia, Canada, uh, Germany too. For you sure. see the left very divided, which has allowed the right in. Matthew? Yeah. Well, I think at times of, of general anxiety, personal anxiety, amongst a lot of people about where, where, where things are going, how the economy is going, whether their job is safe or not, you, you, you can expect to see a, a little bit of tension, a few kind of seismic shocks. But 
Let's not beat about the bush. The, the Tea Party have, have have caused an absolute disaster for themselves and and for their supporters in America. They have just behaved very, very stupidly, and they're not going to do themselves any good. And I think in the end, the Republican Party will reassert its more centrist. I think that's certainly true in the recent shutdown debate. But actually, yes. that, uh, Justin Webb writing in the Times does note it's the deficit and uh, and dealing with the deficit by spending cuts, not tax rises. The Tea Party have put that on the agenda. So they're not a complete failure. Can I give the last word? We're running out of time to Anne Treneman. Who's right? Okay, I really think that we are seeing a, a little bit of a realignment. We are going to have a more right-wing conservative party and we are going to have a more left-wing Labour Party. And I think it's interesting. And I think it is up to the Tory party to figure out how to deal with UKIP in a way that is rational. I mean, now it's just not rational. Just laugh at them. Just laugh at them. Well, they're already <laughs> laughing at them. Um, but they, the whole problem is that, that he laughs right back. <laughs> now, I'm going to have to call a halt at that point. Uh, apologies, because this is a discussion we could have carried on for a lot longer, and it will be a discussion we'll return to in future editions of the Did You Read podcast. Some of the background articles that uh, we've been discussing today can be read on the uh, Comment Central blog on the Times Opinion page of the Times website. But for now, that's it. Thank you to my guests, Matthew Paris, Anne Treneman, and David Aronovich, and my producer, David Maguire. Thank you most of all, though, to you for listening, and do subscribe via iTunes. Goodbye. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Are you ready for truly hydrated skin? Meet Hyaluronic Body Serum, a breakthrough in body care from Osea. It's clinically proven to instantly increase hydration by 161%. Their lightweight, fast-absorbing serum delivers 24 hours of non-stop hydration for silky, smooth skin without the sticky afterfeel. Osea's latest innovation combines the magic of their best-selling Hyaluronic Sea Serum with a new formula that's good for the whole body and five types of hyaluronic acid to target every layer of the skin. Osea is a woman-founded, women-led brand that's been crafting seaweed-powered products for nearly 30 years. The best part? Everything Osea makes is clean, vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Treat your skin to clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code SUMMER at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A-Malibu.com code SUMMER.